The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Amen. That that would be true, that God's kingdom would be moving and working. And it is. We know that it is. So we rejoice in that. What is a joy to stand in front of you this morning? Uh, to be able to meet you and connect with you in this way. It's a real privilege, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, My wife, Rebecca, and I uh, have lived in Greater Charleston for 18 years, so this has been home. We've seen our kids go through the middle school, high school years, and then college, and now married, gainfully employed, amen to that. Um, And so we are at a different phase of life. Um, And so for almost three years now, I've served in this role as director of missions. But prior to that, uh, I was at East Cooper Baptist Church as executive pastor and uh, served there. Loved that church, loved being there. And then I began to work closely with the state convention of South Carolina around the idea of planting more churches in the city. And so it's been a real joy to be about that work. And in that time, I've had the privilege to get to know Pastor Greg Smith. Uh, for probably a decade now, we've known each other and have met and prayed together. And then closely now, over the past three years, as director of missions, even a closer relationship. And I'm always amazed at how God's providence works, aren't you? Uh, you can't see it necessarily in front of you of what's going to happen. But you can look behind you with 2020 vision and see God's providence. And as he traces our steps and what he's doing and how he's directing our path. And who knew that God would take... Greg Smith from here as a chaplain, you'll never get deployed to you're being deployed for a time and season. And then the providence of God are bringing uh, Britain, Megan and Grace Stokes to Charleston. Isn't that an amazing thing when we see God and the way he provides? It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And Britt's right. We're, we're, we're knit together. God has knit our hearts as soon as they came back to Charleston. And we had some overlap in East Cooper Baptist. But when he came back, our hearts knit together in a very special way with our family. In fact, I think they like our kids better than they like us, honestly, but that's okay. We're still connected. Um, but, but to see how the Lord is weaving his plan, and as a director of missions, I just want to say, I, I feel like I've got a front row seat to seeing what God is doing in weaving together something amazing. From church plants that Joel and Juliana are part of over in the Isle of Palms to Seeing churches go through a a new purposing and a new life all over again has been an amazing thing. So one of the privileges that I have is I serve as an elder uh, at Citadel Square Baptist Church downtown. And it's been an amazing thing to watch a journey happen there that was not in the script that I was reading. (laughs) And it wasn't in the script that the church was reading. But when we started Centerpoint Church about five years ago, we found ourselves down at Burke High School meeting there setting up and tearing down every week like you do as a church plant, temporary, and then everything changed with the school. The rent went up, our classrooms were kind of taken away because they were putting a tech lab in, and we had to go somewhere. And Citadel Square was the place we went to. We knocked on the door and said, could we spend a year here and we'll be a blessing. We'll be like the church mouse. We'll try to be as quiet as we can. We'll come in and we'll go out. Uh, But we want to be able to be in a place for a year until we know what God was doing. Well, that year was an amazing time that we didn't know what the Lord was doing, but obviously he did. And so he took 45 people at Citadel Square that were remaining faithful in that location downtown Charleston, 800 seats, and took our 300 church plant, young, rambunctious, (laughs) 
crowd and began to do something amazing, which is it began to weave relationships together. And what happened was God's, God's glory got bigger than our story. And when God's glory gets bigger than our story, amazing things begin to happen, like a courtship of a relationship. When two congregations begin to say, wouldn't we be better together? Now, just like in a marriage, for better or for worse, right? There's a, there's a for better and a for worse part, and you have to work through those dynamics. But what God did was he said, let's do this together. So we took our name center point, put it in a file folder, and we became the new Citadel Square Baptist Church. And what's amazing to me is I watched the senior adults that come in from that number of 45 people. And when they see the Citadel cadets filling up a pew and people up in the balcony and 600 plus people coming on a Sunday morning, it's a new day. Now, that's the power of God. That's not the ingenuity of man or any leadership or any kind of strategic plan. It's just simply the the gospel at work in a powerful way, in a purposeful way. And I want to say to you and encourage you as a church that God is still working in powerful and purposeful ways, isn't he? Sometimes life gets on us and it's hard to see it. It's hard to trace it. But it's still there. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? And so I want to encourage you today with the gospel. I want the good news to be good news all over for you again this morning. That's what I want for you this morning as we have some time together. But I also want you, as you think about your, your life, where you live, learn, work, and play, what would it look like if the Church of Jesus Christ, let's say the churches of the Charleston Baptist Association, 78 of us around the Tri-County area, what if every member lived like a missionary? Lived like a missionary, where you live, learn, work, and play. In other words, the people that are close to you but are far from God, that God began to give you a new, fresh vision for what would it look like to see the gospel power and gospel purpose go forward in a relationship. Well, you and I both know, because you're sitting here and I'm standing here, that we believe that the gospel is the good news of Jesus. We believe that it is the power of God into salvation. I believe many times we, we allow a lot of things and distractions to get in our way before that can become a reality as we see it practically. So my prayer as I work with all of these 78 churches is that what if we took geographic responsibility? What if we as churches on the west of the Ashley side said we're going to work together at a common table to see the kingdom go forward? That's my prayer. That's my desire. So I'm, I'm driven to that both from a work standpoint vocationally, but also personally. We, we're driven to that. And I believe that's in your heart as well. So I'm praying that this morning God would renew all of us in it all over again. So as I'm preaching this message, I want you to know that God is speaking to me as I'm speaking to you. And so I'm praying that God would use his word. Will you pray with me that God would do just that today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a joy to call upon you and say, Father, what a blessing. What a blessing it is, Lord, to be able to be part of your family. What a blessing it is, Lord, to open your word and to behold, as the psalmist says, to behold wonderful things from your law. Would you open up again anew the word of God that we may behold you in a new way? May we see Jesus on every page and may we in that see the hope that we have in the gospel. And we want to thank you, God, for all the ways that you're at work. 
Strengthen us as a church. Strengthen us, Lord, as an association of churches. And God, may your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 7. And as you're turning to Luke chapter 7, um, I, I want to set up a little bit of Luke's gospel to you, just to kind of give a little background. Um, as you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us a, a vantage point, an angle of who Jesus is in different ways. And Luke presents him as the Son of Man. That phrase is used a lot in this gospel. But the other thing interesting about Luke that I have studied and looked at and others have written about is that Jesus, in Luke's gospel, it was very common for him to be going to a meal or sitting at a table, portrayed at a meal, or he's leaving from a meal. In fact, Tim Chester says that in Meals with Jesus. He says, it seems like Jesus in Luke's gospel is either going to dinner, he's sitting at dinner, or he's coming from dinner. So I'm thinking, hey, I like following a savior who likes to eat because I like that too. So the common things that we do, eating, Sitting at a table, I believe, is where we see the uncommon take place. In other words, when we get so familiar with the things around us, whether it be our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, uh, uh, people that we know just in some different way, the familiarity sometimes allowed us not to see the uncommon, the extraordinary things that God's doing. And so I want to I pull out a scripture in one of these meals that Jesus is sitting at a table and something extraordinary happens in an ordinary, if you will, setting. And so as we look at this, I believe the Lord will show us some things that we can begin to apply to our own hearts. And so as we look at this, we find in Luke chapter 7, That Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee to have dinner. It's very likely that he was speaking in a synagogue and the guest or the host of the home said, come to dinner and let's have more conversation. Typically, when a guest speaker would come in, he would sit down at a table after the session of speaking and he would recline at the table and he'd begin to answer questions or have some informal dialogue with the people that were with him in that room. Well, in this particular room, it was a group, probably a group of men that gathered together, probably other Pharisees and religious leaders of that particular synagogue that Jesus spoke at, and they wanted to really press in on Jesus with some questions. And the interesting thing is they never got to ask him a question. Instead, something out of the ordinary happened. So let's look at the text this morning and read and see what exactly took place. In verse 36, chapter 7. In Luke's gospel, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping... She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Okay, have you taken in the moment? A woman from the outside, most likely a Gentile, 
walks into the room, into the house of a Pharisee, uninvited, even, I would say, unwanted. And she begins to do something in front of that whole room and behind Jesus' back. And she never says a word. And yet, in this whole story that we'll read, is that in her actions and in her belief and in her heart, she spoke a thousand words of what she believed. So, you might think for a minute... Jesus is sitting there. He's probably, he's probably sitting down kind of on his side on the floor. The table's probably low. And his feet are tucked behind him. And this woman is just simply going behind him, takes the ointment, and begins to fill the whole room with an ointment perfume. Now, you'd think Jesus for a minute might would have said, if he was politically correct, he would have said, um, excuse me, just a second. Simon has invited me into his house. I'm his guest if you and I would like to have a conversation, I'm happy to do that outside after I'm finished with some theological discourse. But instead, Jesus just lets the woman do what she's doing. Now, guys, I know if you're like me, when your wife takes out nail polish and it's time to paint the nails, and especially if you're in the car, it's a whole different deal. You know what I mean? It fills up the whole space. It like takes over. And usually your wife will say, oh, I'm so sorry. I just got to do this now. And, you know, all that. It's great. I love those moments. It's good. But, But that aroma filled the room. Now, take this in for a moment. It's very likely that this very expensive ointment that she had was not necessarily for her wedding day, which most women would have bought it for that purpose. But because Luke refers to her as a sinner, he's referring to someone who is in, who has disrepute, in other words, has a very bad reputation. It's very likely that the very smell of her perfume is what she used for her business, if you know what I mean. Now, that's what makes this whole thing very scandalous. Because not only is she coming in the room, and not only is she taking something that was her part of her work, but she was actually beginning with her own hands and her hair to touch Jesus. So I want you to take that moment in because this is, a, this is a moment of incredible shock and awe in this room. And here's the first point that I want to point out. Is that tables create space for relationship. Tables create space for relationship. This is where we see gospel presence. You see, Jesus sitting at this table wasn't just a good teacher, and he wasn't just a good law-abiding theological leader. He is the truth, right? He is the way. He is the life. He is the gospel. And so in this moment, Jesus is putting something on display by allowing this woman to touch him and to honor him. And here's what I think he's saying. He is saying that the gospel has access. The the gospel provides access to all people without discrimination. You see, this woman was really good at hiding. The very smell of this perfume in the room was the very thing she hid behind. It's how she lived her life. Whether it be from man to man, whether it be from situation to situation, whatever it was, she was hiding behind all that stuff. And in this moment of time, what she declared is that she was done with hiding. She was done with hiding. You see, that's the amazing thing about 
the gospel is that Jesus is seeking those who are done with hiding. Now, you and I both know that hiding comes pretty naturally for us as human beings on the earth, right? God comes to the Garden of Eden. He's looking for Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? What were they doing? They were hiding. They were hiding behind their own sin. They're hiding behind their shame and their guilt. Just like this woman was hiding behind her perfume and all the things that she was hiding behind in her life. So that's the amazing thing is that we are good at hiding. You have more stuff, you can hide behind it. We can posture a lot of different things, right? And we hide behind it, but the reality of where we are and the brokenness within us remains. Now here's the better news. The better and the best news is this, is that as good as we are at hiding, God is far better at finding. Isn't that good news? That he's, in fact, I love what Zacchaeus, that story of Zacchaeus, remember he was a wee little man and a wee little man? All right, I'm sorry, I messed with you now. You got that song. If you're in Sunday school, you know that song I just started. Sorry about that. You're going to be on that little run for a little bit. You're going to be all right. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? He was up in a tree because he wanted to see Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Zacchaeus, I'm coming into your house. Why? Because I'm coming to your table. We're going to have a conversation. It's time for you, Zacchaeus, tax, tax collector, thief, to get away from hiding behind all your money and your thievery. It's time for you to be found. And he said to him, in that text, he said, salvation has come to your house because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So I want you to be encouraged by this. First of all, your testimony, if you are in Christ, God came after you in your hiding. Believer in Jesus Christ, your neighbor who's lost, who has no desire to know anything about God, God is working and seeking that neighbor. He's seeking the people around us. Because that's what he does. I love this, that we can have an opportunity to have a space for relationships. So Jesus is demonstrating something extremely practical. The everyday, common, ordinary thing we do every day. We sit at a table, and at a table, he's going to put on display how the gospel can be at work in a moment in time. Now, how many tables do you sit at in a day? How many tables do you own? I mean, you start thinking, I'm going to count the tables in my house that I own, right, that I sit at. I know one because it's the one I eat at the most, right? Same for you. How many tables do you borrow? School, work, Starbucks, wherever, right? We have tables all around. And there's nothing sacred about a table. It's what really happens at that table, right? That's sacred, that's divine, that's life-changing. I often wonder if Jesus and Joseph, in the business that Jesus watched his earthly father work at, if they made tables, I have no idea. I don't know if they made stonework or or carpentry work, like woodwork. And then I wonder, how many tables did Jesus sit at that he and his father actually milled out or put together? You just think about those. And the reason why I'm saying that is because we have to think in some ordinary realities, because God works in the ordinary. He brings the extraordinary to the ordinary, everyday things. I think what he's beginning to say here to everybody in the room is that A table is a place where conversation begins to get real and you start having it. And then you begin to see the gospel at work in those moments. 
You don't have to have a table, obviously, for God to work, right? But since we sit at one every day, I wonder if we began using it for a greater purpose. And so this woman, she was done with hiding, and she came to the table. And like the song says, once an enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Now, tables not only create space for relationship, but tables also begin to provide opportunity for a real conversation. And this is where we see gospel purpose. Look with me in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, who'd invited him in, saw this. Here we go. Here's the reaction. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Well noted in the minutes. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon... I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, sarcastically, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. All right, so now we're dealing with the host. Jesus is allowing this woman to come in because he knows exactly where she, he knows exactly where she is right now. Because he is Jesus, he also knows where she has been. But she's at a different place. She's at the feet of Jesus. Everything's different. She's abandoned it all. She's done with hiding. Simon, on the other hand, has got his arms folded in the corner of the room. And it's not like he said this. You've noticed it says that he said it to himself. So it's not like he said it out loud. He's kind of doing one of these things. I cannot believe what's happening. Like, this guy is letting this woman touch him. Does he even know what kind of woman this is? It was scandalous. Now, Jesus had supersonic, divine hearing ears, right? So while he's mumbling over here to himself, of course, in his mumble, he demoted Jesus from a prophet to a teacher. Do you notice that? This guy was a prophet. Now, he's a teacher, maybe. That's probably the best I can give him, right? Jesus says, hey, Simon. Oh, are you talking to me, Lord? I have something to say. What is it? And then he shares this parable with him. You see this, what's amazing is that Jesus is providing access to the woman who had abandoned all. She was done living in her sinfulness. For we know she was a sinner. But now he's going after Simon, the self-righteous one. The one who also was hiding behind his own perfection. His own upstanding morality 
and he wants to get to his heart. Isn't that amazing? That's what the gospel does. It doesn't matter whether you've known about Jesus all your life or if you've known him for five minutes. The need is the same. And God goes after both hearts, just like the prodigal sons. One stayed at home and obeyed and crossed the T's and dotted the I's. The other wasted everything he had. So you have a self-righteous son living at home, doing everything dad said to do. And he's trying to achieve righteousness on his terms in that way. And you have the younger wasting it all, just saying, hey, look, let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die anyways. And, and the father of the prodigals go after, goes after both of them, right? And so Jesus is doing that with Simon here. He is trying to have a real conversation with Simon. And it's going to get real. Because Simon's got to reckon with Jesus, and he's got to reckon with what's happening behind him. So as we look at the story, he begins to unpack forgiveness. Now, what makes forgiveness so generous? Well, one thing we do know is that anytime somebody forgives a debt, the forgiver still has to pay the debt in full. You see, Jesus had to pay a debt that he did not owe, perfectly righteous, because we had a debt we could not pay, right? Whether we're in our own indebtedness with self-righteousness or of sin righteousness, meaning sin righteousness, I'm going to live it up. It doesn't matter. I'm pursuing my own. At the end, I'll just see what happens. I'm going to roll the dice. So either way, we're saying that there's only one way that a true righteousness can come, and that is through Jesus. And that's why I love what Paul said, is that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Like that word, the divine exchange we sang about. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that's the good news of the gospel, is that there is this incredible exchange. But the reality of forgiveness is that someone still has to pay that debt. And so Simon's thinking, okay, Jesus, I know you're talking about the person with the greatest debt. She's right behind you. Like, she's loaded with debt. And he's right. It was evident. Everybody knew it. But here's the problem with Simon, right? In this situation, in this moment, that woman was free. Her debt was being paid by Jesus. And Simon now was the one who had the larger debt. He just couldn't see it. And that's the amazing thing about the gospel, is that the gospel is working with purpose and with power all around us. It worked in us, and it's still working in us. Why? Because it's trying to bring us to the place of seeing who Jesus is and to remember that we only can stand in his perfect righteousness. That's why the gospel is not just good news, like the song says. It's the best news ever. It's the best news ever. That's why I love sitting down with pastors and churches and saying, what if we could together own a geography, if you will, the lostness of a geography, and if Jesus became unignorable to every man, woman, and child, what would happen if our churches and our relationships and our collaboration and our cooperative ways began to really push that needle forward, not in our power, but taking responsibility relationally? What would it look like? Did you know in the tri-county area of Charleston, there are 787,000 people that live here? By the year 2028, one million people living in the tri-county area. I don't have to convince you of that. Just get in traffic, right? 
is every day. Now, here's the interesting thing. On Sunday morning, it's pretty good driving. Why is that? Because only about 95,000, based on what Barner says, Barner Research, 95,000 out of the 787,000, 95,000 on any given Sunday, leave their home, get in their vehicle, and make their way to an evangelical gospel-preaching church in Greater Charleston. What does that mean? 690-plus thousand people are making a choice not to. Now, sitting in the, in the seat doesn't, doesn't make one spiritual, does it? It's, it's, it's only an indicator, right? It's not the true mark of spirituality. It is a mark, but it's not the ultimate one. But what if we just took that as a mark? Here's what happens. In missiology, when a population, a people, a region, goes down to single digits of its population of activity toward God and faith, they start sending missionaries in. When you get to single digits, guess what? We're just about there. Now, we don't see that because we... We, we live in our circles. And I'm looking out here and I see some seats, but I don't see a lot. And, and it feels like there's movement happening. And it is. God is on the move and the church of Jesus is going is to continue to prosper. No question about it. But the, but, the, but the issue we have to wrestle with is when Jesus said to us, I want you to see the helpless and the harassed. I want you to see the harvest like sheep without a shepherd. I want you to see the 690,000 plus that are saying, no, God. 28 people a day moving in the Tri-County area. 55% of the 28, from what we are understanding and reading, 55% of the 28 every day have no faith background. Or they've been to church. It was good for their grandparents, but it ain't good for me. So I'm not going. So when they come to town, they're looking for a job, a house, and a school. Church doesn't get on the list for a lot of people. Why? This is not on their radar. They're helpless and harassed. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So what is our task as a church is to be awakened to the realities that we are the laborers in the harvest. And the answer is not for you and I to come to a whiteboard in the back of the room and say, let's put together a strategy and make this thing change. I wish it was that easy. It is part of the answer, but here's the answer Jesus gave. Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth more laborers. What I believe he's doing in Greater Charleston is he's doing that. We've had six of our churches go through this repurposing, replanting And all six churches that were dying and was close to closure and end have not only been repurposed, but now there is growth. There's baptisms. People are beginning to share the gospel with their neighbors. And it's just easy for you and I, who've been Christians maybe for a while, to get comfortable with the familiar. And what I want to do is take something that's familiar and make us uncomfortable and speak to the uncommon ways that Jesus works at a table. So just take a table, for example. Rebecca and I, about 10 years ago, got a letter from the Homeowners Association. You ever got one of those letters? It wasn't to say you're the best neighbors in the neighborhood. It also wasn't to get on us just personally, but it was for everybody in the neighborhood. We got a letter and it says it's time to paint your mailbox post. So here we go. That got up on my priority list, right? Like that was always on my high priority list to paint my mailbox post, make it look good. 
That wasn't on my, what, you know, but it was something we needed to do. Well, at that same time, God began convicting she and I about our neighbors. In other words, I could tell you the people that lived in the cul-de-sac around us, but the, down the street, all 14 homes, I, I could name maybe one or two people. And here's what God convicted Rebecca and I about. And this is the reality, that I chose your neighbors for you. You didn't choose them. But Lord, I'm doing ministry. I'm going to the church. I'm going to Starbucks to have a coffee meeting. I'm going to work in a, in a situation doing ministry. But yet I'd pass these people every day called neighbors. And God just wouldn't let it go. So we got the letter. We thought, okay, here's our opportunity. We're going to take a Saturday and do the walk of shame <laughs> with a gallon of paint. And we're going to paint every mailbox post with permission. We went to the door, knocked on the door. My name's Craig, this is Rebecca. We live at the end of the street. We've been here for 10 years. You know that walk of shame. We got every name. And the next thing we said, okay, Holy Spirit, now what do we do? And he said, pray for them. Pray for them by name. Okay, what's next? Invite them into your house. Now, I want you to know I'm not hearing an audible voice. Just had to set that straight. I'm, I'm sensing what the Holy Spirit is saying for us to do. So we invite every home into our home. It was around the holidays. We had a dessert coffee. And here's what blew us away. Is that out of the 14 families, 13 families were in our house on a Sunday evening. 13. And one did not come because they were out of town. They had sent their regrets. And it just told us something that God has wired everybody for community. They just don't know how to find it. And so we began saying, Lord, help us to know how to love our neighbor as ourself. And we're still learning at it. We are woefully behind. But we're trying to lean forward into a reality of the ordinary, common, familiar things because God's calling us on mission. He's calling all of us on mission. I'm not saying that story to you to say, aren't we great? Because I can tell you the long list of how we're failing at it. But what I am saying is that until we take something with intentionality, nothing becomes intentional until it becomes specific. So here Jesus is with this woman behind him and that Pharisee in front of him. And he closes out by saying this in these final verses and we'll close the message today. Verse 44. So Jesus turns to the woman now for the first time and says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, I wish that was the end of the story, but it wasn't. So you know what happened. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, then in verse 49, the theological council said, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, the very thing that Simon needed and that this woman found was that she was putting her faith and her hope in the wrong thing for a long time. See, our faith is only as good as the object we put it in. So Simon and those in the house were still saying, I'm putting my hope and faith in my religious pedigree, my religious knowledge. And Jesus is saying, it can only be in one thing, and that is in me. 
For I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, tables promote love for reconciling relationships. This is where we see gospel power. They promote love for reconciling relationships. This is gospel power. Once, our, once an enemy, now seated at your table. I love the way that God seeks us. Seeks us. I, weigh, I love the way that when faith comes alive in someone because for the first time they see their own helplessness, not being able to find a way to God, but then see Jesus clearly in the path and they put all of their faith in him. They abandon it all. In fact, the word for tears in this text literally means heart water. In other words, out of her heart came everything she believed and put her hope in and trust in. My alarm went off twice. Now I'm in trouble. I want you to immerse yourself in this text because faith comes alive when the gospel comes to dinner. Faith comes alive. I want to say this to you as a fellow believer. Faith becomes renewed when we see the gospel again and again and again at our table. You know, the gospel is not finished with you. If you know Jesus and you're saved, man, I rejoice. I thank God, same for me. I have been given a new life in Jesus. But I want to tell you that I still need the gospel every day of my life. And here's why. Because there's so much of me in me. You see, I need the gospel to keep taking like a chisel and a hammer and keep chipping away at my arrogance and my pride. And as a husband, knowing how to love my wife more than I love myself, knowing how to love my kids more than I love myself, knowing how to love my neighbor more than I love myself, I need the gospel to keep pounding and pounding and pounding on me, not to push me to ruin, but to shape me in a way that would help me to love as Jesus did. So here's Jesus in Philippians 2. He empties himself. Why? For a greater purpose. In a greater good, to display the power of God by going low so that God would go high. When God's glory becomes greater than our story, amazing things happen. Doesn't matter what age you are. If you're a middle schooler, elementary, high schooler, college student, it doesn't matter where you're at in life. If we can grab hold of that reality, let me tell you what. The gospel not only gets more real, but it, we can see and sense and feel the power of God at work in us and through us because there's less of us to get through. And I want that for you. I want that for our churches. Why? Because there's 690 plus people that are just living out there as sheep without shepherds. They have no idea other than just doing the next thing. Yeah, there's a God. I know there's a God, but you can't really know him. You can't have a relationship with him. And so they'll tell you their story. They'll say, you know what? I have tried that. I've tried to fix things in my life, and I'm doing pretty good so far. And what we need to do is insert a better Savior than the one that they're making out of themselves. A functional Savior that we create to show that Jesus is the one who can redeem all things. I believe every day someone will tell us what they put their hope in. If we listen, someone who doesn't know Jesus will say in some way... What they're putting their hope in, where they're hoping things will turn around. When things are all right, it'll look like this, and I'm going to try to get it there. And what we have the opportunity when we hear that story is to insert the gospel in a way that shows them that it's far greater than just the temporal circumstances of life that need to change, but the reality of your heart and eternity with God. And then everything around us looks a whole lot different because the gospel is good news. You know, Citadel Square shares a boundary line with Emmanuel AME Church. 
It's been amazing to build a relationship with a neighbor who's different than you in a lot of ways. What God has done with our story is that we share a block and we share a love for a savior. And there's a whole lot of things that we don't share. It's different. But we're trying to learn how to love each other and love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, David wrote it in the Psalms this way. He, he said that God prepares a table before us, before me in the presence of my enemies. And my cup runs over. And his rod and staff protect me. They're there for me. And I just keep going back to that night in June of 2015 when an enemy came in and sat at a table with those precious believers whose spouses have become very dear to me personally. That an enemy took the lives of these nine precious brothers and sisters. You and I would not invite an enemy to our house uh, for dinner. If you do, then you've got a really special mission. I salute you. But it's not a common thing for us to invite an enemy over, right? When we think about it for a minute, the evil of evils, the, the depravity of Dylan Roof, the stronghold on his life of lostness was the same stronghold darkness and depravity that, has, that was on us before we came to Jesus. And somehow God broke through with the gospel and we became not only just family but friends of God because of the reality that we no longer are enemy because of Jesus. So once, our, once we were an enemy of God and now we're, we're children of God sitting at his table. And I think about that story that those nine believers who lost their lives, um, they, they were translated from there into God's presence um, based on their faith and testimony in Jesus. So learning how to love your neighbor as yourself when someone's like you or someone that you can get along with and be likable to is one thing, right? But then when you have to love your neighbor as yourself who is not only not like you, but is totally against the things that you're against. Jesus says, hey, listen, love goes a long way, not just for those who are like you. Love your enemies. Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. And that's what happened in our city, far different than any other city. Dylan Roof, we forgive you in Jesus' name. My good friend, Pastor Anthony Thompson, his wife led the Bible study that night, tells me a lot, time and time again, he's still praying every day that God would rescue and save that young man. That's the power of the gospel at work. That power is still working in us today. Let's pray together as our worship team comes. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, God, that you are at work in ways that we see and don't see. And we thank you for that.